girls are complicated. Episode 41 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Carla Ewart, and with me today is Danny Anderson of the Sectarian Review, another of the Christian Humanist Network podcasts. Hi, Danny. Hi, doing, Carla? Good. How are you? Great. Good. Danny and I were recently able to represent the Christian Humanist Network and the Christian Feminist Podcast at the Wild Goose Festival, where we recorded we recorded our episodes in front of a studio audience. It was great and a little terrifying to be in front of people while we recorded. And if I'm <laughs> honest, I choked. <laughs> I think I said we were recording maybe episode 43 <laughs> and then rushed right into my interviews I had planned without any sort of uh, banter with you, Danny. <laughs> Or any conversation about Wild Goose at all. And so um, I begged Danny to come back and record an intro with me so that we could kind of talk a little bit about what Wild Goose is and um, kind of reflect on our time there. Um, So Danny was kind enough to do this with me. (laughs) And I really appreciate it. (laughs) No kindness is involved. (laughs) So Danny, um, will you tell us a little bit about yourself and the Sectarian Review and how these things relate a little bit? Sure thing. Um, Danny Anderson, I, uh, my day job, I'm an assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. And um, I do the podcast thing sort of serendipitously. I, Nathan Gilmore had uh, looped me into the uh, Christian Humanist podcast there for a while uh, to fill in for uh, Grubbs while he was finishing his dissertation. And, uh, and it, towards the end of that, they asked me if I wanted to think about doing my own. So I came up with the Sectarian Review. Um, and so I've been doing that for almost a year now. And so that's, uh, my relationship to the Christian humanist radio network. I've been sort of off and on involved for what, two, three years now. So that's awesome. Excellent. And we got to do your, um, episode as well at wild goose. I got to be on yours, which was fabulous. Uh, well, Super you fun. saved the day on that. I should say, <laughs> by the way, you were wonderful and <laughs> you brought you. in the guest who was also wonderful, Michael Kimpin. So, um, no, I very much appreciate your involvement there. Yeah. It was so much fun. Um, and it was so good to meet you. We are all spread out in terms of the Christian humanist network. We're spread out all around the country and don't actually all get to know each other very well. So it was great to get to be, um, in person with you for a while. It's really fun. Yeah, I know it's very strange, but, uh, I finally got to meet Michael Farmer recently and then you right, uh, right on the heels of that. So you're the first two people other than Gilmore who I worked with, uh, who, who actually met in person. Right, and Michael and I are old friends from grad school, so I actually knew him before I knew Victoria, and then nah. after they got married and moved up here, we all got to meet, so super fun, but hmm. yeah, yeah, so I think this was for both of us, our first Wild Goose Festival, is that true of you? Oh, absolutely, I'd never even heard of it until this came through the email pike. Right, right, it was my first Wild Goose too, I had heard of it before, my boss, Doug Paget has been involved in it from the beginning, and so I had heard of it for the last couple of years he'd attended and I hadn't gone. And this year um, I decided to go with Christian Feminist Podcast and with the open network um, that I work for as well. So got to be there. Um, so what do you think in terms of like describing Wild Goose now that you've been there once? What's your sort of best case or best shot at a description? 
I, I guess so. You know, we get there. My, I took my daughter, who's eleven, uh, and and she sort of accompanied me on this, and that was kind of cool for her to see. Um, and so we show up, and really had no idea what to expect. It's in the middle of literally nowhere. I mean, mm-hmm. no one had cell service the whole weekend, and and uh, and I, it took me a half an hour, I think, on the road out of there before I might I finally got a signal. Right. Uh, so it's in the middle of nowhere, North Carolina. Everything short of the dueling banjos in the background, you know, and uh, um, and I, I guess I described the festival to people if sort of like Woodstock for lefty Christians. I guess is the way I sort <laughs> of uh, uh, tried to paint a picture uh, for it uh, because it's very much. Um, like a festival atmosphere uh, where tents are just kind of laid down wherever there's room for your tent and there are things going on all over the place. A lot of it is very alien to a, you know, a Midwest boy uh, who <laughs> never <laughs> grew up in San Francisco or wherever. And so, uh, uh, yeah, so I, I guess that's sort of the kind of snarky way I sort of described it for right. people. And I think it actually works fairly well. Right. Right. Um, did you feel like you uh, related to some of it, or like you said, it felt a little? You felt a little bit like not your your normal territory. Did some of it like resonate for you, or did it sort of feel outsiderish the whole time? No, no, absolutely. I, I mean, I feel like um, a lot of the. I mean, it's sort of. Uh, I, I also, I think on my show might have described it as sort of like a left wing camp meeting, mm-hmm. um, and, and so it, it felt like. In the ways that camp meeting, as a conservative Christian, you know, growing up, um, that that felt there were sort of political issues that come along with that. I feel like that same kind of vibe is happening here on uh, at the Wild Goose. Um, I'm, I'm probably not saying this very clearly, and so I, I didn't feel like all that alienated from the political positions um, that people held. Um, I, I kind of appreciated that. Um, it was just I had never been to a gathering where everyone was sort of on that same page, uh, and, and to me that was a, a kind of a. It was interesting to see how that kind of communal agreement looks on the left wing of our political spectrum rather than the right wing of our political spectrum. So for me, it was, I guess, a sociologically interesting uh, experience just to sort of be in that environment and and, in that I had never been anything quite like that before. Right, right. It's super interesting too. Yeah. Um, I totally agree with your description in terms of the sort of leftist Christian Woodstock. I think that's a pretty good way to say it. Um, yes. And I spent most of my time in the open tent, the open network tent. Um, and so, and you know, was familiar with the people who were going to be there and have had enough sort of communal experiences with them to feel like it's, um, these sort of political positions and ideas are, are familiar in sort of this communal way. But I agree sort of the broader, the bigger picture was something I hadn't quite quite uh, wrapped my head around or had that sort of communal experience. And I think like even our conversation about this sort of hipster on the sectarian review of this sort of hipster thing as being a marginal experience sometimes and and this sort of leftist Christian maybe being a marginalized experience to feel like uh, it being a majority experience for a little while is a different way to feel it, you know? So Absolutely. And it was very strange because I mean, I often feel like that kind of person in my normal life, (laughs) you know, where the, the places I happen to live in central Pennsylvania are all very kind of conventional, uh, politically and, and, uh, whatever, socially and everything too. Um, and so I've always felt like 
kind of a, a lefty weirdo uh, often throughout my whole life. Right. And here, I, or there, I should say, I felt more like a righty weirdo. <laughs> I felt like I was disoriented from the other direction. And so I felt like that was a really interesting and, and probably healthy like uh, ethical experience for me. Right, right. So funny, so funny. So did you did you and Ella camp, or did you stay somewhere in town? Or we so we set up a tent, and it thunderstormed like both oh, the, or yes. the nights that we were there. And I was sort of afraid of the lightning and stuff, so we actually went and just slept in our car both nights. Yeah, uh, we had this. I we own this little tiny Chevy Sonic. I don't know if you ever seen uh-huh. it. It's, it's a tiny <laughs> little thing, and uh, but we both fit well enough that I could sleep. So yeah. Nice. Uh, a little backache maybe, but, you know, sleep. A little bit. Not as bad as <laughs> right. I would have expected. Right, right. Yeah, it is truly tucked back in the middle of nowhere in the woods. And, yeah, the cell service was an interesting thing, not having contact with home for a few days there. So, yeah. 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 Well, it was super fun. We got to, for the Christian Feminist Podcast, we get to got to um, interview a few people who I've met in the Open Network and, and then their, relation, their friends a little bit um, and talk with them about... Um, sort of retelling the story of womanhood that many times we were given in a conservative Christian world. Um, and I, I just want to say that I know that our audience for the Christian Feminist Podcast is is varied, and we have lots of different opinions. And some of the things that we t- discuss at the Wild Goose uh, recording may not be in line with what everybody believes or feels, and that is, um, I just want to, I guess, acknowledge that. But I think the conversations were really good and... and um, interesting to hear people's process. We talked with two women and, and one uh, man who's a pastor who has rewritten um, the women in leadership policies at his small church, or his, it's not a small church, it's a rural church in uh, Morgantown, Kentucky. So those were really yeah. interesting conversations, I thought. Did you have any, like, as you think back on that, any thoughts or... No, I, I thought they were great. I really enjoyed listening to the stories that those folks were telling. Um, and I think during the show you'll hear um, some of my story. My I mean, growing up in a fairly, I grew up in a Nazarene church, which is in most ways quite conservative and traditional. And yet from their genesis, they ordained women as a pastor, as for the pastorate. And, and later on in her life, my mother actually became a Nazarene pastor. Um, after I'd left the house, I didn't have to grow up with the stigma of being a pastor's kid. But, um, um, but yeah, so I, I, hearing those stories really kind of resonated um uh, with me on that kind of personal level. So I, I really enjoyed the, the, the guests that you brought on and it was, it was a lot of fun talking to them. It was, it was really fun. And then I got to, um, kind of speak about the same thing, uh, about my own story of, of womanhood and, and growing up the way that I did as a conservative pastor's daughter. Um, I got to share that in the open network tent and that was, that was fascinating. Got really good response and people were really interested in the, in the conversation. So, um, yeah, it was, it was really uh, a fun, I, I don't know, just a, a, an enlightening experience for me to talk about this topic um, in a place where gender is a, a thing that we're trying to sort a little bit. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it was it was really interesting. So, yeah. Um, so you got to do your sectarian review recording also in front of an audience, and you didn't you didn't choke nearly the way that I did. Yours was quite smooth <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> Maybe, but I didn't notice. So now, since you since you have the chance to go back, um, if you could go back, would there be anything you'd change about that recording or how that went, or were you happy with that? That's a tough one to say because I um, I I sketch out questions in advance for my show, but I really like the conversation just to go organically where it goes. Mm-hmm. And the things that you and Michael were talking about, I was 
really happy to just kind of go in those directions. And I thought they really contributed well in unexpected ways to what I had intended to do. Um, I do, I mean, what I had intended to be more sort of uh, confrontational, somewhere between confrontational and critical of the environment. Um, Part of what concerned me about that was the level of just sort of hegemonic sureness uh, that's in that group. I mean, there's the danger of a lack of Mm self-reflection about our beliefs and our political and theological beliefs that I, my show all the time um, takes on in the sort of conventional, normal conservative Christian world. Right. Right. Um, But I feel like, there could be a show that takes it on in this sort of progressive Christian world as well. Um, And just like, and so I would have been more, I guess, confrontational had it been up to me. It's probably best that it wasn't (laughs) because uh, for example, I think I mentioned during my show, I thought Shane Claiborne gave a really compelling and wonderful sermon about uh, the, the capital, capital punishment. He's arguing against capital punishment. And I think I said that, I would love to have seen that in front of a more hostile crowd because mm-hmm. I feel like this is two groups. If you can think, think about the progressive end and the conservative end of Christianity, that don't really talk to one another. They just right. sort of exist parallel to one another in kind of discomfort. And, and I feel like um, Shane Claiborne's speech or sermon was really, um, I mean, it was compelling to me and I felt like it would have really been a necessary or a very helpful intervention in some of the political beliefs on the right end of the spectrum, right? Mm, yeah. And so, um, on the other hand, I didn't name him during my podcast, and I sort of I feel like I copped out there. Um, but Frank Schaefer, okay, I thought mm-hmm. was a total disaster. Let me just say that. Um, and if I get in trouble for this, um, and, and I saw him tweet out, I watched some of his, and he followed Shane Claiborne actually, mm-hmm. uh, and he did this really vulgar anti-Trump rant. I can't describe it in any other way. Mm -hmm. And vulgar in not only the fact that he's using curse words, but the fact that it was just stupid. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so he was like throwing raw meat to this progressive crowd. And not only, I mean, I could take factual, I mean, obviously I'm no fan of Trump if you ever listen to my show, Mm -hmm. but I could take, you know, factual uh, exception to some of the things he was saying. Um, but in addition to that, his tone and his rhetoric, if you closed your eyes and just sort of reversed the names, you would have thought it was Donald Trump talking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, I mean, he in, in all the, his sort of ranting against Trump, I mean, he became Trump. And, and it was just to me kind of, I, frankly, sickening. I thought it, it did not come across very well at all. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so for me, I would have taken on that kind of... Um, I don't know, just sort of um, programmatic right. assumption-based you know, <laughs> right. dogma, political dogma, right. uh, uh, and I didn't in my show. And uh, the more I thought about it, the sort of angrier I got about right. what Frank Schaefer was doing. Mm-hmm. And so um, I probably would have risked my own little inappropriate rants had I gone in that direction. Right. So I'm kind of grateful that I didn't. Right. <laughs> even, though, right. even though I did just now. Well, but I, yeah, I hear you. It's, <laughs> it's interesting the different... Um, I, and, and that's, I mean, I think that's a thing we can reflect back on the conservative, um, you know, back on that side and say, we know that they're, cause I, I, Shane Claiborne is one of the kindest, most generous hearted person, people, you know, and, and yeah. it, it, they, the different, um, 
approaches exist on all on all sides in terms of political opinion and those types of things. And yeah. um, there isn't a side that's sort of exempt from um, from being from a lack of self awareness. You know, um, I, I, I felt like Claiborne. He literally, I mean, very easily could have fit in in a, a more conventionally conservative mm-hmm. uh, Christian environment mm-hmm. and delivered that same sermon, and it would have been very helpful. Mm-hmm. I'm imagining. I, I'm just sort of you know ridiculously imagining Frank Schaefer delivering his speech in that same environment, it would have been an utter disaster. And and I just felt like those were two kind of polar opposite examples. One of what progressive Christianity can provide really nicely. And one of the dangers of just sort of becoming infatuated with your own, you know, patterns of thought. Right. Right. That's really interesting. Um, Yeah. And I think and that's part of what I, I loved about doing the sectarian re- review with you was your your thought process in terms of just kind of creating a sense of self awareness regardless of what your belief system is and how um, how you believe is as important as what you believe as a friend of mine says you know that that actually is is a better indication of of the state of your um, uh, I, yeah you know what I mean yeah I do and I I mean I wonder if I feel like I'm intellectually dishonest and I'm trying to overcome that. I, I do feel like this has become an obsession of mine is to sort right. of monitor my own, you know, you know, know that I'm thinking in a context. Like I, I have thoughts right. about things, but they're not just natural outcroppings of, of rational belief. They do have my own biases involved mm-hmm. and, and those sorts of things. And so I, I really don't want to be that, I don't want to be Frank Schaefer, frankly. Um, and so I, I, I'm trying to, I, I use the occasion of that podcast to um, maybe guard against that a little bit. But um, right. yeah, um, perhaps I've said his name too much. <laughs> no, I think, I think you get to, I think you get to say it. It's just fine. Um, that's great. I, Danny, I really appreciate you doing this with me. We'll wrap so that we can um, get to the, to the episode that was recorded there. Um, but thank you for taking time out to, to correct my, my phone oh, with me. No, no, it. <laughs> no correction, Carla. I'm glad to talk to you. And I, again, I really appreciate a you coming onto my show. I think you and Michael just like really made it work um, really well. And also the invite to sit in on your show was, was very flattering to me. I, I, I love listening to the Christian feminist podcast. And, and so um, I'm hoping to get Victoria on my show. We talked about doing something yeah. about Ted talks um, informally here. So, um, and Fine. so, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to do a little more crossover with you guys. Cause I, I think what you do, awesome yeah thank you likewise all right and now here's episode 41 of the christian feminist podcast from the wild goose festival so some of you heard before the the christian humanist network is uh, a growing network of uh, people who are uh, doing several podcasts like six or seven we're not sure at the moment um that usually have a really high level into intellectual content. These people have done some homework. They, uh, under, they understand a lot of the big picture questions. And so they, when they discuss something like Breaking Bad on the, the Christian Feminist podcast, which Carla is one of the, a member of that team, it's like the most interesting discussion of Breaking Bad you ever heard. And that's actually a recent episode, so you should go back and listen to it. Uh, and so I really highly recommend you go to christianhumanist.com dot com org. Dot org yeah. and look at the different podcasts and listen to a few Christian Humanist 
podcast was the first one, and uh, those guys do amazing things. So I'm just plugging. We have the second podcast that came down down the pipeline was the Christian Feminist Podcast, and Carla is a member of the group that does that, Carla Ewert, and we are now going to be treated to an episode of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Give member irregularly. Give it up for the Christian Feminist Podcast and guests. Thank you. We're so glad to be here recording this episode at, at the Wild Goose Festival. Thank you to Russ Jennings for inviting us and the festival for inviting us. Um, we're really honored to be part of the lineup here of, of uh, live recorded uh, episodes. So we're excited about that. Um, this year's theme for Wild Goose is story, receive, respond, and reshape. And this makes me really happy because I love stories. I read a lot of fiction. I studied literature. Um, and stories have sort of shaped my sense of myself and my experience of the world. Um, during my formative years, uh, I felt more camaraderie with, with people in books, characters in books, than I did with some of my peers, for better or worse, that's the case. Um, but these experiences and these characters helped me understand myself. Um, but what I love about the theme this year for Wild Goose is that it points out that while stories shape us, we also get to shape stories, that we have that power. Um, I taught a freshman comp course at a community college in Texas for a while, and the one of the things that I had the hardest time communicating to my students was um, this idea of how to revise effectively. They thought that once the words were on the page, they were static, they couldn't move, this was what it was. And so um, I would talk to them about the power of revision and how um, that was really where the, the imagination starts to kick in and where things start to get good. It's like looking around a house and thinking, and either thinking these walls are all where they want to be or thinking about it in terms of remodeling. Like what if we saw a window right there and you would go and get a sledgehammer and break out that spot where the window would be. Um, so I would make them revise. I would, I would hand out and they would have to cut apart their drafts and, and rearrange the paragraphs and write and write the um, transitions between those, and they hated it. But I believe in revision, and I believe in reshaping our stories. So the story I want to talk about today on this podcast is a story of womanhood and how we as um, women have been given stories of womanhood and how we then get to reshape those and think about those and respond to those in our lives. And mm -hmm. I have some fabulous friends with me that I get to interview today. Um, I also today have Danny with me, Hello. who is part of the <laughs> Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Um, so before we get into this, Danny, do you want to say anything about yourself, introduce yourself and talk sure. about Sure. I'm uh, Danny Anderson. I teach English at a little college, Mount Aloysius College in Pennsylvania. And I host another podcasts on this network called Sectarian Review. Um, Carla helped me out on my last episode, so I'm going to try and stay out of her way for this one. So. <laughs> We're super glad to have you. And I guess I didn't actually introduce myself, so I should do that. I'm Carla Ewert. If you listen to the Christian Feminist Podcast, you've heard me there before. Um, so yeah, we're really excited to be here, and today we're going to have three interviews talking to people about stories of womanhood that have shaped their lives and how they have reshaped those stories, and the first one is with my friend Teresa, and I know Teresa from various things, but I work for an organization called The Open Network, and Teresa has been a part of our organization in, in speaking with us and working with us, and she's been a good friend to me, come through Minneapolis a few times, and we've uh, been able to talk and enjoy one another, and she, um, for me, is a very healing presence, and she is that in general for a lot of people. Um, she is a trauma therapist, a contemplative practice and yoga teacher, and a contemplative actioner. She's offered, authored two books on trauma, spirituality and healing, Mending Broken, a journey through the stages of trauma and recovery, and Sacred Wounds, a path to healing from spiritual trauma. She's a graduate of the, of the Living School at the Center for Action and Contemplation. And, the, and how do you say that? So you say that for me. So oh, Shivananda. Shivananda, yoga teacher training, and the New York, school, New York University School of Social Work. 
So that's your fancy wild goose bio. Mm. Do you have anything else you would want to tell us about yourself? Um, I have two dogs that I love very much. That's, <laughs> that's it. That's good. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> what are their names? Oh, okay. Um, Gaia and Faith. And, and Gaia is wonderful, and Faith requires a lot of faith. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, so today we're talking about stories, specifically stories of womanhood. Um, so tell me, I, because I'm a geek reader and because on the Christian Feminist Podcast we tend to talk about books we like or movies we like um, and have discussions around those, tell me about a character, whether a movie character or a book character, I don't mm-hmm. care, who sort of has shaped your view of your womanhood or who informed that in some way for you in your formative years or lately. Um, yes, and that is a very hard thing to discern because I was also a major book nerd as a child. Like, one of the only award I ever won was for reading the most books over the summer vacation. Yep, two years running. Um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, um, thinking about that, there's two specific characters. There were these books that I read very, very early on, were read to me probably before I read them, um, in this series called Value Tales. And um, one was about Margaret Mead, and the other was about Sacagawea. And so for me, those two characters embodied parts of myself that I've sort of taken on in different ways in my life that I didn't realize was sort of the beginning point of that and were powerful women figures as they were defined in these sort of very, still very simple, um, synthesized child stories. But for me, Margaret Mead is the sort of excavator of the human condition. And in the work that I've done, both in the contemplative path and also in the healing path feels like um, it was setting a seed up for me to want to find out what human nature is like, both individually and how we live together. And then um, Sacagawea, for me, I'm an adoptee. Uh, I was born in Bogota, Colombia, and I'm adopted to a white family. So I think for me, in an unconscious way, there was a resonance with this powerful figure of this indigenous woman that had done great things and and showed great heroism that uh, also planned to seed for a different part of myself, a sort of identity hood. Right, that's amazing. That's fantastic. Um, um, in terms of like, because we're at Wild Goose and we're thinking about these things in light of our faith in a lot of ways, was there, besides these stories that were super inspiring to you, um, how has your religious background shaped your idea of your womanhood? Has that been something that has shaped that for you? Or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I was raised Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, and at a very early age, I remember memorizing um, the liturgy for the Catholic Mass, and I would um, whisper it under my breath while the priest would say it on the altar. I would be saying it in my seat, um, in my pew. And then I think uh, somewhere, probably around eight or nine, I realized there were no women on the altar, and I realized um, in some form or fashion that there wasn't a place for me in that space. Um, and so I. I think for a very long time that informed, you know, sort of this vision of, at least in a religious context, what were the limitations of womanhood in church? Um, I had a very progressive, liberal, sort of politically family, so while we were religiously Catholic, I say it's a lot like cultural Judaism, you know, you can be religiously something, and then at the same time, the political ethos doesn't necessarily match. So in my secular life, there was a lot of um, liberty to be the fullness of myself, but in my upbringing, in my religious life, there were a lot of limitations to what womanhood looked like. Yeah. Did you feel that as a juxtaposition and a, and a conflict, a dissonance in your growing up, um, in your forma- forming thoughts about yourself? Did that impact the way you experienced your faith at all? Or, Yeah, I think um, I left 
Catholicism and Christianity as a result for about 10 years, starting at 16, right around that identity, individuation, selfhood space. And I think it was because there was too much of a conflict between the limitations within what I saw as organized religion via my Catholicism and the person that I wanted to be and saw possible in a secular world. So they didn't really seem like they could hold space together. Right. So it made you feel like you had to choose to be outside of that in order to have some full understanding right. expression of yourself. Right. right. But you found your way back into it in various mm-hmm. ways. Um, so tell me about that. Like, At what point then did you start feeling a response that allowed you a different idea about how those two things were held? Mm-hmm. Um, so I had two sexual trauma experiences in my late teens, 18 and 19, um, which initially was in itself sort of a rupture of that faith crisis in a place of sort of having no resources, having no spiritual resources, no community, no context to place this sort of existential breaking apart. But at the same time, it strangely, paradoxically became the place to reconnect with faith and spirituality. And for me, that started first through yoga, then through mindfulness. And then honestly, um, back through a a lineage of women that I didn't know existed in the fullness of themselves, Mm -hmm. which was the Christian mystic women. Um, And so finding Christian contemplative practice and learning that there was this rich history of powerful, strong, actioning women within the church that had been sort of obscured from much of history, Mm -hmm. but had such a lineage for something that for me was exactly what I needed to heal. Right, right. Tell me about one of those mystical women and what she means to you. Um, so that's easy. Yeah, that's an easy one. Um, so that would be Teresa of Avila. If anyone knows me, they would know that. Uh, such a dork. Okay. Um, but so I was um, actually named after her. So in a weird way, it was uh, going to the Christian mystics was a returning to my origin place. When I was um, brought to an orphanage in Colombia before I was adopted, that was run by Great Order nuns, and I was born on the feast day of Teresa of Avila. So they actually named me Teresa, and then my parents had been praying in their church in New Jersey, their Catholic church, for a baby in Teresa of Avila Church. So I say I was named twice after Teresa of Avila and sort of had no choice to end up back where I started. Um, And so for me, she um, she has been important in more and more deepening ways at various points in my life. Her personhood, her personality, her fieriness, her Spanish origin has connected me to a part of myself I think that I haven't known that I'm still unraveling. Right, so that's my next question is thinking about that how this is still unraveling and how your identity as a woman um, mm-hmm. and, and in these other ways, how is that shaping it as you continue forward mm-hmm. in, in what you're up to? Yeah, I think um, So it's interesting, I recently reclaimed, I was talking on this adoption panel yesterday about this, but I recently reclaimed my birth name, which is Mateus, Mm -hmm. um, which is the only real piece of my history, my biological history, biological family that I have is this birth name that I came into the orphanage with. And so for me, there's there's a carrying of this name from this mystic lineage that I sort of accidentally walked into, into history, and then there's a reclaiming of a part of myself that's also part of my 
origin story and putting those pieces together. And in this weird way, these simple things, like these two names going back together, um, is, is to me becoming a gateway to deeper understanding of myself, both as a woman, but also I think there's a lot of identity unpacking around race and culture and um, indigenous roots, which interestingly intersect back to that Sacagawea, um, Margaret Mead intersection. Right, absolutely. If you could, this wasn't a thing I had on our notes, but I think it, it's interesting to think of when we're reshaping our stories, um, what we would want to, to have known <laughs> when we were that little one. Um, and how you had these super inspirational stories in Sacagawea and these others that, that gave you a sense almost of what you would become and how you would reshape your story, because that feels really true of you for me. Um, but I, I would be curious what you would tell her. <laughs> about oh, the yeah. responding period, about the middle part, about what she received in the mm-hmm. responding period? Um, I think that's a really good question. That's really hard. It's really hard. It's really I hard. Know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't even prep you for that. I know. Um, I think um, patience, patience with myself and patience with my unfolding spiritual and personal journey this sort of um that who you are you know and I would actually say that to the me now as well you know almost as a reminder that it's a continually unraveling unfolding process Mm -hmm. and just patience with myself and patience with the journey right right that's fantastic well thank you so much Teresa um so good to have you with me on this um we have two more interviews, so we're going to do those. Danny, thank you for sitting. Sorry, I, if you have anything to add, any questions to ask, I would love to hear those. Do you have questions for Teresa? I had one in case you needed yes. a question, uh, but no, I, would love I to don't hear need it. to ask it. Um, <laughs> uh, well, the one thing, um, as you're talking, you seem, um, wh- I have a daughter myself, and uh, two, and <laughs> one here, and uh, one thing I worry about is the sort of received gender roles that the culture just sort of... They just, people can internalize and just sort of live up, live up or down to. Um, how do you see, since your adoption, your whole story seems to be transcending <laughs> some of these things. How do you see the received gender roles shaping that story? Mm. Well, and I think I think there was real. I mean, there's a richness in the Catholic history that I then was able to come back to at a different stage of life. So I think there was a depth there that I wasn't exposed to initially that has value. But I also think that sort of, um, for me, it was the family norms of women speak up and you have a voice in the world um, that was powerfully important for me. Um, Even at a young age, just sort of talking about the complexity of my identity in elementary school when people would ask things like, who's your real mother or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I think having the ability to have voice, being told that your voice matters as a woman, is critically important and often the thing that is the most um, counteracted. That's great. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks so Thanks much. for having me. <laughs> Next, we get to talk to Brie Stoner. Um, and Brie, I just met, and I'm so excited to have met her. I have a feeling it's the beginning of a long <laughs> acquaintance and friendship. Um, Brie Stoner is a musician, writer, and recent graduate of the Living School for Action and Co- Contemplation. Besides contributing to Isla Delios. Ilia. Ilia Delios. Yeah. Recent book, Personal Transformation and a New Creation. Uh, Brie regularly contributes to the Center for Spiritual Resources and Contemplative Wisdom blog. And her work music includes published records as well as the production and composition of the soundtracks for the NUMA series featuring Rob Bell. 
She's the mother of two young boys and lives in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So this is your official yeah. Wild Goose bio. Um, so what else would you want to tell us about yourself? Oh, man. Um, it's kind of like I'm sharing, I'm sharing things that make like it obvious how uncool I am. Uh, I'm, I'm like a closet R&B fan that's slowly coming out of the closet. And um, sci-fi geek. Nice. Yeah, I'll share those two for now. That's awesome. <laughs> well, that leads us right into question one yes. <laughs> about stories and stories of womanhood that you got from either film or book that mattered to you and shaped you. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I had the great privilege of growing up without a television. And so my parents uh, basically gave us the option of books for entertainment. Right. And um, very early on, they shared the work of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and George MacDonald and uh, Madeline L'Engle. So they, that had a, a great deal to do with um, what shaped and formed my ideas of womanhood. But I think, I think particularly because I'm such a um, fantasy freak, too, that... Uh, the work of Tolkien was just so close to my heart. So Lord of the Rings was like an epic journey that I took every year. I was with, I was like right there with Frodo. Mm -hmm. That was fantastic. So I think the two characters that probably shaped me the most were Arwen and Eowyn. And I was like right there in the middle. If I could be somewhere between like an elvish princess with the power to heal people and then like a badass who cuts off a Nazgul's head with a sword, <laughs> like that, that would That's be. That's kind <laughs> of the perfect place. That's awesome. This is the happy Great. medium between the two. <laughs> I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so on that, what was your sort of religious background, and did that contribute or not? Oh, yeah. Your, your stories of women. Right. Yeah, definitely did. I grew up as a Baptist missionary kid uh, in Spain trying to convert the Catholics and save them from hell. So that obviously <laughs> had a lot to do with why I spent so much time in my books. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, the religious background that I grew up in was very conservative and... Um, similar to Teresa's story, at a very early age, probably by the time I was five, I was already in my dad's office arguing with him about why women couldn't be priests. And um, it's interesting. It's, it's almost like there were two different paradigms being shaped in my life at the same time. I had the religious background that I was receiving in which women didn't really have a place. And I equated that place of, of being a pastor or a priest as... Um, somebody who's deeply passionate about God and theology and who cares deeply about God and theology and wants to make that their life. So the absence of examples of that meant that I didn't, I wouldn't be able to have that um, closeness with God. I wouldn't be able to do that for a living. Um, but all the while that that was taking shape, I was reading these other books that were creating an alternative paradigm mm -hmm. in my mind, a world full of imagination in which things were possible um, that weren't possible in the normal everyday life. And the funny thing is, is that, you know, usually when we become adults, I think we get to a certain point where we're like, yes, but see, that's a fantasy. So elves aren't actually going to show up, <laughs> Brie. Like, but I'm not entirely sure that I ever stopped believing <laughs> that those places are real. <laughs> I just remember as a kid, like, and by a kid, I mean, I was probably 12. And, you know, thinking, you know, if I just, my parents had this rocking horse in our living room. And I remember thinking, like, if I just cry one magical tear on a full moon, 
onto the onto the rocking horse. It will come alive, and it will take me back to my place of origin, where all these people lived, elves and the fairies, and you know, all these things are very real. So fantastic, yeah. And that so you felt like keeping that sense of fantasy and that sense of imagination was able. You were able to kind of hold on to that in spite of these things you were learning about your womanhood yeah absolutely I mean there was this there is you know like most untruths we encounter in our lives we grow around them and we see this in nature right you know you see these trees that bend in all these directions and we're, we're no different life evolution will always carry us through we'll keep going and I had received the tools through the work of these great you know authors that gave me a representation of what femininity and womanhood could be that it could be this fierce thing that there was a place for it um, that there was a place for beauty for sensuality and for courage Mm -hmm. and I yeah I believe that in my heart and I also believe that the God that I experienced in my gut was so much bigger than the paradigm I was being handed right right Mm -hmm. do you have like a memory of a specific moment where you had you felt a sense of dissonance between what that fantasy that you held for yourself and and that reality you were living like a specific Mm. time that you can point to that you thought oh these things aren't lining up it's a good question. Um, I'm sure there were probably a lot of moments, uh, but probably, you know, even as late as my early 20s, mm-hmm. um, you know, working at a, at a pretty big mega church here in the States and um, experiencing from the leadership teams over and over again saying, oh, well, you know, we'd, you know, male uh, authority figures saying, we'd love to take you on as a disciple. You've got, you know, we're really interested and you're just wonderful, but um, you should go find a woman to go be a disciple of. Right. You know, this fear, this nervousness around femininity, the discomfort around um, womanhood is so presently active in our church environments. Right. And um, yeah, I, I had encountered that as a, as a teenager too, and a worship leader and sort of coming into exploring music and trying to serve my community in that way. Um, there's, there's still a lot of phobia around, right. you know, women. Right. There is. I'm, talking about this phobia in the open tent at five oh, about excellent. how we particularly we as, <laughs> right we totally yeah, did yeah, we got that. how we particularly as evangelicals have a, have a, a sense of threat and fear around our um around women and sexuality i think grounded in um some complementarian and purity culture things that we specifically oh, yeah. were were given so yeah and i think i think me. for me Another another thing that contributed to this this insistence that it could be different than that it could be more mm-hmm. is the irony that I grew up in Spain. You know, Spain is, is it's not exactly a, a country that's that's lacking in sensuality. Right. <laughs> you know, and I think I think landscape is really important. Landscape plays a big part in how our pictures are shaped. Mm-hmm. And the particular landscape of my childhood was this beautiful, rough, rugged desert desert country and if if any of you have ever been around spanish women you know or seen the movie spanglish it's like you know you know you cannot mess with a spanish woman and so even though our my family we were missionaries and all this like i i had aunts and cousins and sisters who were spanish who modeled this kind of chutzpah this kind of strength this like you know they have these terms like que no tiene pelos en la lengua it means you don't have any hair on your tongue in other words whatever you're thinking you're you're going to let them know, you know, it's right. like, that's going to come right out. 
And there's a salt of the earth quality to Spain and Spanish women that I think also deeply informed um, that sort of courage of, of wanting to insist that this could be different, that even though I was receiving a lot of no's and discomfort around who I was as a woman, that, um, that, that there was a broader, bigger picture beyond that that right. I belonged to. Right, right. Um, so tell me a little bit about how you specifically responded to these moments in your life did you did you have sort of an internal dialogue you're talking about the way that you had these other examples but was there a moment you wanted to say yeah you're right I can't Mm -hmm. uh, that you were able to talk yourself through in some way some response to that yeah yeah I don't know I mean as a teenager I don't know that I had the skills to think through it actively in the moment Um, what I did is I accepted the no and allowed it to exist. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know that that was a conscious thing that I was doing. Um, however, I did not allow the no, I did not identify with the no. I did not allow the no to become a part of my identity. Mm-hmm. I just moved on. Okay. And so if there wasn't a place for me in that church context, there was a place for me on the stage. And there was uh, a way for me to express my uh, interest in theology through music and to just be a fully incarnated woman on the stage was a totally different environment than being in a church and so the stage became a pulpit where the pulpit was not offered mm-hmm. and um, you know the interesting thing is that years later some of those male you know figures that had said no came back around and and apologized and, and talked to me about what had happened and wow. um, the beauty of that is that, s- that sometimes we have this tendency to assume that if there's a no that we need to fight against it right away mm-hmm. but sometimes those no's are doing a work resistance is not always something that we have to flee from because mm-hmm. just like childbirth just like anything in nature there's something frictional about new life that is it's just it's sort of the avenue within which new life takes shape and so in the long run I think those moments of friction became gifts not just for the the men who were able to see things later on but for me as well it shaped and formed me and gave me more courage and all the things that we need to continue to um, have faith in in who we are and our purpose right so those moments when those men came back were those healing for you or had you already done that healing or uh, I'm just curious in terms of reconciliation yeah the gender work that we're doing yeah it's so important you know and it is healing and you can think that it's not healing and then in the moment you realize oh (laughs) I'm getting getting very emotional right now this is really (laughs) there's some stuff there but I think gender reconciliation work is something that um is really needed right now. I, I had the privilege of attending a, a gender reconciliation conference with um, uh, Cynthia Bricks mm-hmm. and Will Keeping, are two people who are out there trying to do a lot of gender reconciliation work. And we did these rituals between men and women where we were apologizing for sort of the collective wounds that we were giving to one another. And it was another powerful experience of allowing grief to come and we store our grief in our bodies. And so as we continue to move into um, acknowledging sensuality in our bodies and the things that we're storing here Mm -hmm. in our bodies, these things come up Mm -hmm. and it is such a a beautiful thing. It's such a beautiful release of healing um, to experience because once we allow those things to come out, then we're able to reconnect again Mm -hmm. and reconnect in a different way, Um, not just as individuals, but, you know, for the healing of, of 
this gender war that's happening on the planet, you know? Right, right. Um, so you've talked about your body and those types of things in terms of expressing your womanhood. Is that a thing that, do you have practices around that that you're a part? No, I'm being really serious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, like I, I think our yeah. understanding and, and valuing our bodies as women as a thing that doesn't hinder us from places of, of power and leadership, yeah. but as a thing that contributes to in a way that we can better understand yeah. our, our place and our, almost our surround our space you know almost the central just the feel of right now the really hot air on our skin <laughs> those types of things like tell me about that yeah. Do you have any practice around that yeah and you know i think similar to Teresa, discovering the christian mystics and the the mystical christian women that um are out there was like sort of step one for me of oh there's this whole other world out here of like right. powerful christian women um you know just just changing the world but um the christian contemplative practices are practices of presence and embodiment and they're not always taught that way because we have such an intellectual need to dissect everything from our minds so oftentimes we come at contemplative practices by trying to figure it out with our heads but all of these practices are meant to to teach us how to be here Mm -hmm. and it starts with sensation it starts with the body you know so simple practices like putting your feet on the ground and really allowing the sensation to fill your feet and really bringing your attention to that to that sensation can help ground us in the present moment Mm -hmm. and in our bodies Mm -hmm. and I'd probably say like the other thing that I do is I love to dance Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know and I mean like really like to dance I I do this thing like for a while with my brother we would go out together and he'd be like can you do that thing where you bad dance and freak people out you know so like (laughs) we could get up behind people and like just dance horribly but dancing is is an act of of, um, an absence of self-consciousness dancing is a sacred sacred thing and it's something that all of us can do we can all turn on some music for 30 minutes a day and move our bodies and remember that we are incarnate in these bodies and that spirit is moving through this like flesh and blood thing that we keep ignoring um and it's an experience of of not identifying in any one posture so it teaches us about flow about movement about playfulness and laughter and yeah it's good that's fantastic yeah that's fantastic (laughs) so i'm going to do the same thing to you i did to Teresa and ask you if you could tell that girl in spain who was debating with her dad about priests and women women if you could tell her something what would that be it's like it's like on the cusp of it being an oprah moment (laughs) (laughs) you know we could cry if we need to i'm fine with that (laughs) i think i would i would i would say to her trust your gut trust yourself Mm-hmm. You know, similar to Teresa, our voices are so muffled over. Um, we so desperately want to please and be a good girl and do things right and please our authority figures. And it's very difficult to strike out beyond that and to trust our own voice in this world and on this planet. And so um, I would tell her to trust, trust this, trust this, this body and trust your voice. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Danny, did you have any question you wanted to add to I that? Don't, uh, the only, I mean, we get so engrossed in this conversation. No, I'm here for moral support, whatever <laughs> you want. Um, I, I mean, as you're talking, so much of my what little I know about feminist psychoanal- psychoanalytic theory is coming into my head. And when you talk about landscape particularly, um, and you talked about the landscape of Spain, mm-hmm. often landscapes, oceans particularly, are kind of gendered as feminine, right? Uh, is mm-hmm. there a way that you saw the Spanish landscape as providing some sort of model of femininity? Yeah, you know, I mean, there's something about desert landscape that brings life into high contrast 
with reality around you, you know, because the life that exists in a desert is stubborn. It is, it's rugged, it has to fight to be there. And um, the roots that are there, of the plants that are there, go deep. They go really, really far into the earth. And they're pulling up this nurturing from this deep place in the earth. And so there's something about the resilience of the life that exists in the topography of Spain that just connects, and the dust and the dirt that's in everything. You know, it's just, it's like, it's that capacity to always be tactile and be feeling. Um, I think those two elements would probably be part of it. And just the terrific food, I mean, you know, because the landscape provides the incredible food of, you know, sure. tapas and eating, you know, all night long. So. And then the stage, you were talking about the stage um, mm. as being a pulpit free space, right? Yeah. As opposed to the pulpit. And I don't want to make any crude Freudian sorts of readings of, the, of, a, of a church building, right? Mm-hmm. But the pulpit is very masculine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is there something about the stage that eliminates that and makes it more free? Or, or Yeah, you know... I think because there's the option to express yourself creatively and freely, um, you know, we're still operating with this idea that teaching has to come to us through talking and through a very intellectual package. And oftentimes the most profound teaching can happen through art and through engaging our other senses and getting ourselves out of our left brain, you know. So I think there's something about the stage that gives permission to, to expression, to be feminine, to be sensual, to be um, fuller, more rounded, uh, creative, abstract, uh, symbolic. So symbol is, is something that's so powerful in, in what is sort of part of like performance culture and more and more now, I think, too. It's getting really cool out there. Thank Thank you you so much. much. Thanks for being with us, Bree. Appreciate that. (laughs) So, in the interest of um, having all kinds of voices here, we're going to have Josh Scott come up now. Um, Josh is a pastor at Morgantown Community Church in Morgantown, Kentucky. He's been there for more than a decade. In addition, he's a husband, father, YouTube fan, coffee enthusiast, enthusiast, avid highlighter, and a self proclaimed master of the obvious. This is also your Facebook profile bit, isn't it's it? It's everything I do. Right, this is it. That's this is the, all of it. That's the total <laughs> encapsulation of my life. Right. Josh and I are friends and get to be a part of the Open Network together. Um, so I happen to know that he late recently at Morgantown Community Church rewrote all their paperwork on women in leadership. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that and about your background and how those things have formed you. Um, so tell us a little bit about your religious background and um, and kind of how that shaped your understanding of women and women in leadership in the church. I'm from eastern Kentucky, West Virginia area, and my grandfather was a free will Baptist minister. And so our my experience growing up was really kind of a contradiction because it was very much a male headship sort of, that was the doctrine, right? But my own experience in my own home was my mom was actually the most dominant personality. And she was the one who was kind of, my dad worked a lot. He was gone a lot. And so she was really the one running the household. She was the one making the decisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I had this, I was going to this one place where it was like, men are qualified to do this and women aren't, but I saw her doing it. So it was a little confusing, right? right, About So why isn't she qualified? Because she actually does it better than he would if he were here. So, Right. Right. So your religious background, though, said otherwise. Yeah, super super conservative, Mm -hmm. super um, male-dominated. I I can remember the first time I heard a woman give a sermon. Tell me about that. Who was that woman, and uh, what was that? I'll tell you about it. It was when I was in college, so I'm like 19, 20 years old, and I was at a conservative campus ministry, 
And the campus minister invited his wife to talk to us, which was scandalous. Like, people gasped when she got up. I mean, this was a scandalous event. And I remember she got up and she gave this talk, and I thought, she is better than him. Like, not just, it's not even close. Like, he's awful, and she's a really good communicator. (laughs) I just remember thinking, why can't she do this more? Because he sucks. (laughs) And uh, it didn't work out that way. He got a lot of pushback on it, and it was a very conservative denomination who ran the campus ministry, so she didn't get to talk very much. But I just remember being almost captivated by what she was saying, even though theologically now I would probably push back on almost a lot of her doctrine. Yeah. There was just this sense of, of seeing her in that role, which is something I'd never seen before, outside of like a televangelist person or something, right. which I didn't really take seriously. So it was really a, a kind of a moment for me that began to reshape a lot. Right. That's amazing. Um, so when you became the senior pastor at MCC, tell us a little bit about that. First of all, what's, and what was MCC like when you became the pastor? Um, so it's a non-denominational church, but it came out of a Southern Baptist background. And the pastor before me had really reclaimed that background. Mm-hmm. And so it was really, really concerned. I actually walked into this thinking it's going to be great. It's going to be so much fun. And like I remember my first meeting with the elders and staff, and they were all yelling at each other. And I thought, what have I done? <laughs> like, I can't do this. And uh, so the church was really fractured and broken and divided. And so for the first four or five years, it was just about healing. Right. and trying to get people to talk to each other. It was about pe- we hemorrhaged people all the time. Like they were just going, and not even for theological reasons like they do now. It was for like other reasons. Like we don't like that person over there. And so, um, so that was the, my first four or five years. I've been there almost 12 years now. The first four or five years was really just like, can we just talk to each other? Mm-hmm. And can we just be in the same room with each other? And can we just try to forgive each other? Right. Um, and then the other stuff started. Like once that began to heal, mm-hmm. the other stuff started unraveling a bit. Right. So tell me about when when it came to your attention and when you decided it was worth reworking your policies on women in leadership. Well, since day one, you know, I've been talking about women and men as equal and how women are like I would always often I would highlight stories in the Bible of women like just being clearly better than men at things. And it just assumed that we were all on the same page. But then one day I was sort of like, you know, I've noticed we've never had a woman nominated for elder. And so I just asked my associate pastor, who's, who's been there since the beginning, I said, hey, why, why, why do women never get nominated? He's like, oh, yeah, we have this thing. <laughs> what kind of thing? He's like, this policy that uh, says women can only do certain things in the church. And I said, I've been here like six years, and nobody's shown me a policy on anything. So he gives me this policy, and it basically says, you know, we really value women and their contribution to the local church, but they definitely can't serve as elders or senior pastors. And I said some things when I read that because it was very disturbing. It wasn't the church, I, you know. We had, we had this, the church has always said, come as you are, all are welcome. But what I was finding out is that just wasn't true. It was all are welcome if you are a specific kind of person. If you're a male, if you're heterosexual, if you fall in line, and if, you know, everybody else is here to spectate. Mm-hmm. And so it was just one of those things immediately. I, I emailed our elders and said, we, we have to talk. Um, because it was just the point, like, I'd been saying something very contradictory. So, they, like, we had to decide either we're going to go this way or we're going to go another way, and I can't go that way with you. Right. Um, and so I just I called it with my all-male group of elders uh, in rural, rural, I can't say the word, rural, rural, rural. South rural. Central Kentucky. <laughs> and I just said, we got to talk about women uh, and their role here in our congregation. Because my experience in church had always been male-dominated leadership structure, males making the decision, and basically women doing everything else. Mm-hmm. Right, so even as a kid, my Sunday school teacher were women, our people running everything in the church were women. Women were doing all the work, 
and then men were coming along and like, we look at us, we were made first, and you know, it was just, <laughs> you know, perhaps they were made first because God realized I could do better. This is not the end of it, and so um, yeah. Th- so my experience was always that women were really the driving force of the church, mm-hmm. and so my position was, if we're going to ask them to be this for us, then they need to have a an active loud voice in who our church is and what we're doing and how that's actually working out right so how did your elders respond to that you know it was really surprising mm-hmm. I, I have to be honest because really, I was expecting like some sort of pushback and they just said well how uh, like what about the Bible I was like it exists it's a thing you should read it and uh, we just they said how do you how do you deal with this because we're on board and we get it even if we don't understand the Bible about it we get it um, so how do you th- how do you think we're going to talk to people in our church about this who grew up in a culture that said I mean I can't tell you the number of women I hear who say things like, you know, it's my husband's the head of the household. And I'm just like, gosh, do you have, but is that how you really function? Mm-hmm. And so I did a series of teachings uh, called Girl Power. And we basically spent a month and just looking at um, the, and we didn't even look at like women in, in ministry at first. We just asked questions about the Bible and this assumption that this thing fell out of the sky, you know, 2,000 years ago with gilded edges, King James English, with your name engraved on it by chance, <laughs> and that, you're, that now this thing is a static, frozen in time thing that you're supposed to live your life by. And so we just started questioning that, asking questions about that. And then we, we, I dealt with some scriptures that seemed to say one thing that I thought said something else. And, um, and so it was one of those things, since it was on the, you know, we don't vote on many things. Like the only thing that our church really votes on is like to buy property or fire me which we're trying to put off right. for a while. Might just um, anybody listening to this who goes to my church, <laughs> vote no. Um, and so uh, anyway, we had to have this church vote on this to, to repeal this sort of. And we created a new policy that was centered around Galatians 3, which is, talks about you know, there's equality in the Christian family, that there's not you know, male, female, Jew, Jew, Greek, any of that stuff. So, so we had a vote, and um, we had a 96% in favor rate of recognizing the, what was already true about uh, the value of women. One of the people who was the most vocal, vocally against the change uh, and eventually left our church really sort of over this issue was a woman mm-hmm. who had, and in, in just in talking to her, I realized she has been told her entire life, this is who she is and this is all she can be. Mm-hmm. And, and it has so shaped her understanding of who she is that she can't even... Right. Like this is not for her. It wasn't welcome news. It was sort of like you're now violating the way God made the world to be. Right. Right. Um, right. Were there any? Um, so I, I used to go to a church that also does not allow women to serve as elders, and one of the arguments that I had heard from uh, people there, <laughs> I don't want to name names, I guess, um, um, is. There's sort of like the slippery slope argument. Um, did you get a lot of that? That if well, if we ordain women, then we're going to have to do um, every other tenet of belief goes down the toilet. If we, if we, did you encounter uh, any of that? Uh, I mean, people always say this. Stuff. I have a friend who says, uh, my friend Stan Mitchell recently said that they warned me about the slippery slope, and when I got to the bottom, God was there, and she smiled and said, <laughs> "Welcome." Um, and so, um, look, uh, you know, I, I think. I think that that argument, and, and some people push back on that, you know, that, oh, this is a slippery slope. What's next? Are we going to recognize the equality of gay people? Y- yes. <laughs> yes, we're going to do that. You know, so I just think that that argument to me is an argument out of fear. A fear of, uh, and, and if that, you know, usually that argument comes from, in this context, uh, you know, a male who is losing their grip on power. 
I, I was, if that's okay, yeah. Carla. I was telling Carla yesterday, my mom actually, after I'd grown up and left the house, became a Nazarene pastor. And um, the Nazarenes, in many ways, are really conservative, but from the beginning, they always ordained women. Um, and it, I always held that up as a, a oppositional <laughs> argument there. But even in my mom's churches, there were people who, though they had grown up Nazarene themselves, did not a, a, a sense of the idea of women leadership and so um, is there something that's like just broader than denominational is there some sort of like cultural Christianity that, that is feeding into well, this uh, dissent I mean I know the south yeah because that's where I'm from yeah and so I would say yes in the south there is a, well there's a definite just um, a, a white male driven culture that, that when you begin to push back on that, again, when people feel their power structure is threatened, they respond, right? And they respond usually to protect and shore up that power structure. And so I think that's what you see happen. I, I think there's this sense of it's, it's unnerving for some pastors, for example. Um, you know, like we invite really incredible women preachers to our church, and they're better than I am. And there's a certain sense of like, really, I'm going don't, to, I don't invite men who are better than me. It's just a rule. Like, if you're better than me, I'm not going to invite you. You have to be a little bit. I did have Brian McLaren in our church, and he's better than me. But generally, <laughs> I will not have anybody better than me at our church. And so, but I think it's important. And I'll tell you this. The first time we had a woman come in and just deliver this, like, you know, drop the mic sermon, uh, it was unbelievable the response from both men and women in our church who were just completely like, why don't we do this more often? Um, we need to have these other voices. And so like this Sunday, since I'm here, um, one of my elders, her name's Deb, and she's in her 60s, and she's also our interim children's pastor, and she's going to bring the heat. <laughs> and we're super excited about it. So it, for us, it's no longer, you know, one of the, one, of the one, one person said to me, I've never listened to a woman preach before, and it was incredible. Like, I didn't know that was possible. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you, you realize that they, they think and talk and think. Like, like <laughs> you, <laughs> You realize that's a real thing, right? So, um, but it's just it's what you get cu- culturally conditioned to, and you begin seeing people in one way, and then sometimes you just have to see them. And I've just found experience, yeah. uh, and not theological reflection. For me, it's always been experience has always driven um, my changes in the way I see the world, and that that really comes from uh, a Wesleyan sort of idea. You know, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, where you know, one of Wesley's big deals was our experiences of God in the world actually begin to shape how we interact with God in the world. And so it doesn't mean that other things don't matter. It just means that I think if we have real experiences, if we don't take those things seriously, then uh, it's, it's impoverishing our faith and our world. It's incredible. Thank you so much for that. Um, I don't know that I can't ask you, like, what you would have told yourself as a young woman. But is there a thing myself. you would have told yourself <laughs> as a young pastor um, that that would have helped you on that journey a little bit of these changes that you've made? Um, gosh, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of things I would have told myself as a young pastor. Like one of them would have been like, don't, you know, but, <laughs> um, I, can't, no. um, I, I think I would have just uh, asked myself and, and I think both um, Teresa and Bree said this. And I think it's so true. I would have told myself to listen to my gut mm-hmm. because there was so much of my gut early on, especially I started preaching at 17 and I was not willing. It just sort of happened. And I was saying things I didn't believe in about God, about women, about all sorts of things. And I would have just told myself, there's something going on inside of you. And there's this intuition that all this is bull. And you need to listen to it because 
if you don't, you're going to have regrets later. And I, I have a lot of regrets about how I've treated a lot of people when I was in my early 20s, late teens. Um, yeah, I said right. just pay attention to what you feel. Awesome. Thank you so much, Josh, for being with us. Thank Appreciate you. it so much. Um, and before we totally wrap, I get to invite my friend Victoria up. Um, Victoria's a... Victoria is a dear friend of mine from my church community, Solomon's Porch, and um, she does slam poetry regularly in Minneapolis, and the slam poetry scene in Minneapolis is fabulous, so we get to go and hang out there and watch uh, Victoria perform. So this is one of her poems about womanhood and how that's developed in her that I wanted her to share with us. Cat called. Waitressing at Carboni's as a teen, I thought it was kind of normal. My boss would sometimes point to me and say to the male cooks, let's take a moment to admire her legs, as if my body parts were something to pray to like a saint. Oh, patron legs of pizza making. When I got married, I thought my wedding ring would put me under a protective veil, but then there was the angry follow-me-down-the-block man screaming, what do you expect looking all sexy like that? Me, in athletic shorts and a white t-shirt on a 102-degree humid day, but I wore pants the rest of that sweltering summer, and decades later, I'm still carrying tear gas. At work... I thought professionalism would spare me in my below-the-knee pencil skirts and blouses buttoned high. Instead, I got the be-my-side-dish honey co-worker. So I found another job, gained some weight for a long time, kept myself plain, 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 as if I could be erased. In my 40s, I decided I'm too old for this. I'll wear short skirts and low-cut blouses if I want. And the drunk man at the sushi bar leered, that dress makes me think ungentlemanly thoughts about you. As if I might go down on him right there when my husband and kids waited for me in the car, in the alley. And judge me, if you want, for being uncomfortably polite to him. But you never know when these things will shift violent. But I kept wearing that dress, and I refused to blame myself. And when the man at Walgreens looked me up and down and said, mm, 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 I know your husband is pleased with you, I nodded and looked him straight in the eye and said, yes, he is. Recently, Cat called from a car while walking down the street. I stood taller, put on my don't mess with me face. The car came closer, slowed down, and I grabbed my tear gas, scanned the area for people. There was no one around on that sunny afternoon, and I thought I might really be in trouble this time. Till I heard my daughter's voice. Mommy, it's us. It was my husband cat calling me, <laughs> driving with our two kids in the back seat of the car, teaching them something he never meant to. This man who would lay down his life for me over and over, who hyphenated his name like mine to show who he belonged to, who has never cat called anyone and never will again. I'm so sorry, he said. I thought you would know it was me right away. He didn't understand. All cat calls sound predatorily alike. But my daughter does. She said, that's why I told you it was us, Mommy, right away, so you wouldn't be scared. At 10, she knows more than some men. <laughs> Thank you, Victoria, so much. 
Thank you all so much for being here. Does anybody have a quick question? Do we have time for a quick question? Rest? We don't. Okay, we have to wrap. So I'm going to do my little wrap here, and then we're going to go. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes for this and other episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network, Kristen Philippa. Philippic is our publishing liaison. Sway Jimenez is our intern for, for uh, I just, Danny, for Danny Anderson and all my wonderful friends at Wild Goose. This is Carla Ewert signing off. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things love. Mm-hmm.